Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, the Other People Podcast is offered freely. All episodes, more than 600 episodes and counting, are all available for free it's a listener-supported show. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to throw a few bucks in the hat, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Thank you. I'm the father of the year, I got hit in the balance, Where did I put the sound footage? Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to The Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy. I'm your host. It's good to be with you. This is The Other People Podcast coming at you live. No, it's not live. Coming at you from Los Angeles, California. I'm standing in Los Angeles, California. I'm in my garage. I'm talking into a microphone. I stand up when I do this if you want to try to get a visual of me. I do not sit down. I'm not moving around. I am standing though. I have a stand-up desk. I'm in the corner of my garage, and I'm looking into the corner. I have no view, if you've ever wondered. There's a helicopter buzzing over my house right now. Robin Page is my guest. She has a novel out on Harper Perennial called Small, Silent Things. And we had a great time together. She came over not too long ago, and we had a conversation that I'm going to share with you in just a second. It's a crazy time to be alive. It's a dangerous time in some ways. It's a lot of nutty... I mean, not even in some ways. It's a dangerous time to be alive. <laughs> I guess it's always dangerous to be alive. That's kind of a stupid way to put it. It's a dangerous time to be alive. But you know what I mean. It feels like the stakes are so high. Shouldn't be this way. I mean, I know, like, existentially, the stakes are always high. We could all die at any moment, right? Any day could be your day. Try to embrace and enjoy your life and squeeze the most out of every moment. But we have these external forces that are ratcheting up the stakes and the stress and the emotional content of our lives. And then you couple that with these delivery mechanisms like social media and cable news, and it's just a lot. Nevertheless, I'm feeling good. 
you know isn't that weird you uh you have all this in one part of your mind and then you know on the other hand it's yeah life's fine i'm having an okay time i'm feeling good i really am it's a lot to be happy about it's not all one way i'm trying to be psychologically healthy right okay I went to a yoga class today. Maybe that's why I'm feeling like this. I'm feeling a little bit, uh, pieced out. I purged myself. I try to go once a week for that very reason, just to like wring myself out. And today there was this woman in the back of the class who was sort of central casting yoga woman, very like flexible and fit. And in the middle of class, we're like doing backbends. And she of course is doing this like very technical, difficult backbend and she slipped and fell out of it sort of landed with a thud and just shouted fuck like very loudly <laughs> when it happened which in you know over the years I've taken oh god I've taken a lot of yoga classes I think I've taken over 3000 yoga classes in my life conservatively and I've never heard anybody shout an expletive in the middle of yoga uh, in the middle of a yoga class until today so that happened. I don't know why I'm telling you that. It was relatively uneventful, but it did startle everyone. It's a dangerous time to be alive, right? Times are dangerous, man. <laughs> so, uh, let's podcast, shall we? Let's get to the let's get to the program. Let's get to the main event. This is Robin Page. She is the author of a novel called small silent things and it's available from harper perennial it's got uh like a bunch of uh, effusive blurbs and good reviews and i had a delightful experience with robin when she was here and we sat down and i'm going to share it with you now here you go folks this is robin page and her novel one more time is called small silent things <laughs> When we first moved there, I kind of had this dream of moving into the woods, and then I'd see lots of wildlife, and it's just like a lot of snakes and a lot of rodents and um, rattlesnakes. Yes, <laughs> all I, I kinds was just, of snakes. I was just hiking uh, yeah. this morning, and this lady that I always see up there—that's a buddy of mine. I'm like, "Hey, how's it going?" She's like, "A Doberman pincher got bit by a baby rattlesnake and died." Yeah, it died. I'm sure. Yeah, baby, the babies are the worst because they can't control their venom so yeah. so you got to deal with that i do and um i don't see them a lot but i see them fairly often and I, i'm not afraid of snakes i just would rather not like encounter them they quite don't, so they much they don't bother you though yeah. sna- like, it's not like rattlesnakes are stalking you not really but i i go pretty much every day to santa maria and so they're there and then i'm nervous about my dog and i'm nervous about myself so i have to wait and one time i was banging the stick and it just stayed there so what is, what is santa of- maria uh, it's a it's a hiking trail. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. So you hike with your dog and you see them. Yes. See, and when I've encountered rattlesnakes, I feel like they're just crossing the trail. They're getting out of the way. Not usually. I don't know if it's just because it's more in nature and they just feel like it's their space. So when it's warm out, they kind of stay there. So then I have to wait. You know, I remember once I was on the phone and I kept talking and I was thinking this thing is never going to go. And I am afraid. So I just went the opposite way and then came back 20 minutes later and it was gone. Yeah. I saw saw one with my daughter when she was like four and she, it scared the shit out of her. She was like, Oh my God. But I was like, that's okay. I'm like, it's, if it's coming at me, 
with yes. like intent to bite, then I'm going to be freaked out. But otherwise, like, I think it's just doing its business. Yeah, it is just doing its business. But I sort of felt like it would be paradise up there. And it ends up that I'm stuck in traffic most days for 40 minutes trying to get down to Pacific Coast Highway. Uh-huh. I mean, it is beautiful. It's gorgeous there. There are fires every other you know, month. Right. And there was one right in front of our house and it was, yeah. I mean, I, I was gone, but my husband was kind of upset with me because I refused to come home and, you know, I was like, what am I going to do? Right. So, well, you know, it's interesting that you say all this because I have been fantasizing. I've been fantasizing for a long time about getting out of the city. Right. And like living up in the mountains somewhere, somewhere beautiful, I can breathe and go hiking, like all the stuff we just talked about. Right. So talk me down off that. Off that I, I just think it's a great idea. I do, but it's different when you live there. I mean, if you could have a place, that would be better if, if you could go somewhere. I mean, we go to Mammoth. I love Mammoth. It's a little bit city, a little bit country. It has hiking. It has lakes. It has everything, but I don't have to deal with the day-to-day, you know, taking care of my space. We have, you know, I live in a really small um, 1930s cottage and there are about eight huge oak trees right in my yard and they're huge. And so that means I have piles of leaves every other day. You know, there's this constant work. It's like being a farmer. I mean, if you live, if you live out there, you have to take care of so much stuff. You got so. chickens? I do not. Thank God. You haven't gone there yet? <laughs> there's no way. You're not doing yeah, it. No, my mom had, you know, like a hundred guineas and 15 chickens and you What's know a guinea it's like fowl? a guinea hen yeah hen. guinea hens they're pretty cool actually they're really neat Did you grow up on a farm no my mom moved to kentucky um when she retired and it's really beautiful but you know um there's no way i don't want to take care of it i would probably you know the people i know in topanga who have chickens just have major rodent problems because they have to feed the chickens and then the rats and the mice and the whatever else come and then you get, you get some cats get rid of the rodents <laughs> then the coyotes eat the cats and then, then you're then what do you do i, I know, know then you're you just have the rats the rats just stay they're the smartest and they stay but yeah no there's no chance i would ever get chickens there's no way too much cleanup too much um yeah i can't do it can you are, are you writing better up there like has it been good for your creative life to be in a place that's a little bit more still um I would say I, I write pretty routinely no matter where I am. I'm pretty good. Um, but I think the the setting is pretty ins- inspiring. You know, in my book, I have uh, a lot of places that are inspired by Topanga Canyon because I hike a lot and I see a lot of the nature. So, so for me, wherever I am, I'm going to be writing about the space that I'm in to some extent, I think. Yeah, I'm a hiker too. Where should I be hiking? It's just hard um, to get to the west side, but those hikes are gorgeous. Yeah, I, I only go, I'm only in Topanga mostly. I just actually got this, uh, just yesterday, I got a, an app called LA Trails. Oh. So because when I lived over here, when I lived in Redondo, I would even go as far as like Runyon Canyon, which is pretty far. And then when I, where I lived in Redondo, they had behind all the houses that the city had made these trails. I mean, they're just beautiful that go from the ocean all the way, you know, to Crenshaw, I guess. So that's pretty nice. But now I just go to Santa Maria pretty much every day, which I like. I, I just, and, and a lot of the trails over there, you can't have your dog. So. Oh, really? But yeah. Santa Maria, you can. You can, yeah. And then I, my daughter goes to school and back behind there is a trail. So I usually park. I take the dog. I pick her up. All the kids, you know, love on the dog. Right. And then I go home. Yeah. When you, got a pu- you have a puppy right I now. I do. When yeah. you have a puppy, you're everybody's 
favorite. It's true, but I need the kids, too, to socialize her. So I'm always like, she's at that mouthing phase, so I'm holding her mouth shut, and there's 20 kids, you know, just piling on her and petting her because I want her to get social. And what were you telling me before we came on? She's like a Sharpay mix? Yeah. She's a Sharpay lab, probably a little pit bull because they all have that um, mix, and that's sort of my favorite mix. I've had that mix for a while. My wow. last dog was that. Why? Well, when I was 18, I got a Sharpay, a full-blooded Sharpay as a gift, actually. Thanks. Yeah, it was nice. It was from a boyfriend. And um, I loved it, but it hated other dogs. But I loved it. It's just a really smart breed. They're really people-oriented. And he was just so smart. I mean, I just loved it. So easy to train, easy to take everywhere. But no matter what I did, and I tried everything, he refused to like other dogs. He would be nice to the the other dogs that I had eventually and then nice to my mother's dogs, but that was it. And, um, so I thought, well, what could I get? That was a mix that would kind of, you know, subordinate that bad quality. And so my next dog ended up being, I think, I think he was a Rhodesian Ridgeback in Sharpay and he was beautiful and nice and good. So I just kind of thought, well, I'll try to always get a Sharpay mix. And so um, what's the girl. And now you have a girl. I have a girl and I had a, I had a girl right before this too, that, that, died, but she was the best dog ever. She was mostly, I think, chocolate lab and Sharpay huh. because she had that beautiful coloring. And so when, when they I'm trying to picture the mix, but like, do they have all the folds and the wrinkles or is it sort of mitigated by the lab? Part? No, it's mitigated by the lab, but my little puppy does have the wrinkles, but she'll grow into them. Even the full blooded Sharpays grow into them to some extent when they're, when they're babies, they just are crazy wrinkly. But then when they grow up, they, they, yeah, my dog is like it. the biggest, like who knows what it's, it's a yeah. mix of everything. Right. She's like a Franken dog. I don't well, know. you never know, but I mean, the good, I, I think you get kind of the good qualities when you get a mix of all of them. At least I've found that. I, I don't, I have never had any luck with purebreds. Never. I rescued a pug. Oh my gosh. I'm always, I always How many say, dogs have you had? <laughs> I've had a lot. My whole life we had dogs. And then when I moved out, I had the Sharpay. And then at a certain point in time, I had three dogs at once. My God. Yeah, but now I'm down to only one. I only do one now. That's yeah. it. That's one's, all I one's can good. handle. Yeah. And you got kids and you're living in the canyon. You're fending off wild yes. animals in the canyon. <laughs> exactly. Writing I'm fending books. off wild animals in the canyon. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. 
So, uh, are you from Cincinnati? I am. Okay. I'm from Cincinnati. So I have that right. I'm from uh, Indiana. I spent the second half of my childhood in Indiana. Good for you. So, same yeah. neck of the woods. Yes. I have never been to downtown Cincinnati, and I lived in Indianapolis. Oh, well, you should have gone. It's pretty great. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. yeah. I flown. I think I've flown in and out of that airport, and I remember coming in being like, oh, it's like hilly, and there's, well, there's more happening like from a topography standpoint. Definitely. But when you fly into the airport, you're actually in Kentucky. Right. So then you're, you'd have to come, you know, more towards Cincinnati, but it's truly a beautiful, um, entrance into a city because the river is right there. The architecture is really cool. It's gotten even more interesting, of course, since I left. And, um, when did you leave? 91. Oh, okay. So or 92. Yeah. To come out here? 92. Yes. Yeah. What, what brought you out here? My husband. Yeah. Oh. So I met him back. Uh, he's he's from Cincinnati, but he lived here, and then he was back having knee surgery, and I met him then, and then I moved out here. He's having knee surgery. You met him after like the operation. Yes. Or like, was he on the table? <laughs> no. After the operation, yes. Okay. A friend of ours introduced. So us. he was wounded and vulnerable. Yes, and I took advantage. And yes. that was it. Yes, Good that was you. it. I thought he was rich, you know, <laughs> L.A. Right. I was an Ohio girl. I didn't know any better. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you come out here in 1991. So you're basically you're a Los Angelino at this point. Well, not really. I can't do it. I can't. I just can't say it. I still say things like, I'm going home for the holidays. And people are like, home. <laughs> you know? But you've been at, what, that's th almost 30 years you've been here? Yeah. Uh, is that the math? I guess I was 20, not quite 30 years. Yeah. 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 So. I mean, I've been here almost 20 years. I'm starting, like, I moved around as a kid. Like, I didn't do all of my childhood in Indiana. Right. So I never know where I'm from. And I, I guess I'm a Los Angelino, but I'm kind of like you. I don't feel it. It's hard to feel like you're, you're, I don't know, like this is home to me. I love it here. I really do. I love the weather. Um, I, I finally got used to the people after about 10 years because I used to think they were just so unfriendly when I first moved here. It was a big battle when I first moved here because I didn't want to stay. And my husband kept saying, well, we can't go back, you know. And um, then after about 10 years, I started liking it. And I realized people are nice. They're just more distant than... When you go back to the Midwest, just everybody is super friendly and then they love kids and it's, it's different. So when I it's came so here, easy. it's easy, right? Yeah. My wife is from Minnesota. We were just up there and I was just like the whole time we had perfect weather. Yeah. Like unusually, like there weren't even like any mosquitoes oh. in August. <laughs> really? Yeah, in so Minnesota, like, no mosquitoes. I'm wow. Like, wow. Like I can do this. Like yeah. this is, I mean, you know, it's like just simple with kids and everyone's yes. down to earth and like just... It's slower. It's nicer. We had to go back for a you know a number of summers. I lived different places, which was really great. But we went back home to Ohio one summer, and I remember my husband coming in and saying, "Okay, we got to go back now." We had been in Cincinnati about I don't know two and a half years, and uh, and I just started bawling. I was like, "Oh, I don't want to go back because I gotten used to being in the Midwest again." Right. So the only thing I hate is winter. And then also, this sounds ridiculous, but in Cincinnati in particular, there's always gray sky. And it just feels, I mean, seriously, That's 300, how 300 days too. a year, it's a nightmare. Yeah. So you just feel like it's on top of you. And I think that really affects my mood. And I think I'm so, the same. I remember yeah. that distinctly growing up. Like once you got to the spring... There's like almost a desperate need for sunshine. Yes. Like desperate. Desperate. Yes. Gotta get out of this shit. <laughs> like you're in March and it's like freezing rain and you're just like, oh my God, make it stop. Right. Exactly. Um, so what, what about like childhood in, uh, in Cincinnati? It sounds like it was, like you liked it. I did like it. I think, um, 
You know, I think Cincinnati is pretty unique in that it's extremely conservative, so that's not me, but it's also oddly supportive of the arts and public schools and um, and and things like that. So that made it a really positive experience for me. Also demographically, because it's kind of the first stop from the South, I grew up in an extremely mixed community. Um, I don't mean... I mean black and white. I don't mean anything else because that's all that there was when I was growing up. But um, yeah, it was pretty diverse. My neighborhood was all black, but I went to school with, you know, all different kids. So black, white, Jewish, Catholic, you know, every. So that was that was a good, good situation for me. Yeah, I always I try to explain this to people about I think Cincinnati and Indiana, uh, Indiana, you know, Indianapolis and Indiana in general. Uh, share a lot in common. They're close. It's like right. a couple hours away. Close, not yeah. even. But uh, I try to explain to people how southern the yes. the vibe is. Yes. In Indiana, even though um, what is it longitude latitudinally? Which one's the up or down? I, you know I what I'm saying? It's, 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 it's kind of in the middle of the country, <laughs> even more closer to the you know closer to the north. But there's definitely a southern vibe, and I think yeah. Cincinnati being closer to Kentucky, right. Um, that's definitely got a Southern vibe. It definitely does have a Southern vibe. So that's good because it's friendly. Um, but I also think it's bad in other ways. I mean, there was, you know, it was, there were certain ways that it was super conservative, you know, religion was very conservative. I personally didn't have the experience. I mean, I, obviously if you grow up, I'm black. If I grew up in an all black neighborhood, that works. Right. Um, and when I went to school, we had we had a public school that, I, that we had a number of really good junior highs. So when I went from sixth grade to seventh grade, I had to test into a school that was public, right? So it was kind of an academic, you know, for kind of quote smart kids, and so that brought all kinds of kids from every part of the city. It had nothing to do with race or money or anything. And then I was I got a great education, and um, my husband had the same thing only he was in the arts so he he went to school for creative and performing arts which is which was a huge opportunity what does they, he do is he, a, is he an artist he's a rig and key actually <laughs> yeah so in the what? movie business oh really yeah what does that mean rig and key he um sets up like the rigs on a movie so he is not on set but he sets the things up ahead of time at least i think that's what he does it's yeah, they have all confusing. these they have all these like they have all these like yeah. cool like code names for right. you know movie jobs right well i just know that he's always trying to rig up something right so literally hang things up and set things up but he's not on set anymore when he first was here he was on set he was then he was a grip which was lighting which this is still lighting, but it's a higher position. So, well, yeah. Now he's rigging. Yeah, he's rigging. He's not gripping. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's better, but he's gone all the time anyway. So there you go. What does he have to like travel around the world to these like where they're shooting movies to do this or? No, not anymore. Which is really good. He um he we actually traveled a lot after as soon as my younger daughter was born. Initially, with my older daughter, we had made a deal that he wasn't going to go out of town because you know I kind of wanted to stay married. You right. Know? Right. <laughs> And um, so that worked. But then there was a time when all of the jobs left, as I'm sure you're aware of. And um, and so we had to travel. But luckily, we only had to travel in the summer. And then we just stayed in the United States, which was pretty great. And you brought the whole family. Yes, of course. And the dog. That's kind of yes, cool. It was cool. It was great. And then I got tired of that after about five years. And then we got to stay home. And we've been home now for about three summers. And... Now I'd like to go again, right? Yeah, you're like, yeah. I just want to go. I kind of want to go somewhere too. Yeah. I just traveled and 
it's kind of exhausting with younger kids. My son is four now, uh-huh. um, but he's got disabilities, so it adds like a layer getting him through the airport. Yes. And uh, like we had a good time, but I got home and I was like, I need a week. Do you only have one? Two. Two boys? Yeah. Uh, both? A girl and a boy. A girl and a boy. And how old's your daughter? She's nine. Nine, yeah. Yeah, so she's, you know, she can, at, at age nine, they can deal. Yes. As long as they have like, you know, an iPad or whatever. <laughs> iPads are great in the airport. I don't care what anybody says. Okay. Are you anti-screen for kids? I am. I'm like anti. no screens at all? No. My daughter has some screen, but um, she only is allowed to use her iPad to listen to books. Fuck. I, I, I'm uh, so my... In other words, I'm failing. <laughs> no, no, you're not. No, I think it depends on what you, um, what you want in your household. That's all. I seriously, I'm not judgy. I just think, um, I, I do get slightly judgy about cell phones. Is like, that bad? I don't know. Cause I'm, <laughs> this is the thing. Like I'm trying my best. My kids like to watch shows. I watch shows all the time yes. when I was growing up. Did it screw me up? Probably. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I like the idea of my kids only like reading books and that's it. And like listening to music and I don't want my daughter to have a smartphone, but then, you know, I feel that there's going to be this social pressure happening. How do you deal with that? How do you be the parent who's sort of like, no, you're not going to do this. You're not going to be on social media every five minutes like I am, you know? I'm pretty hardcore about the, um, about the cell phone. I would say my daughter watches a show or two every evening for sure on Netflix. That's her choice. Um, usually that's an hour of TV. Okay. I feel fine about that. I watched all day Saturday cartoons when I was growing up. Seriously. We, we woke up up and (laughs) sat down and stayed. So I don't think it's going to kill her. My mom was really strict about TV. We were only allowed to watch a half hour a day and I always watched Gilligan's island i totally remember yeah and um so my daughter she does watch tv that's not what i'm saying but as far as the ipad goes i just only use it for that and she's used to it so she thinks it's great like i make her earn the ipad by doing you math. gotta earn the ipad <laughs> yeah my sister says to me i don't understand how you did this this is ridiculous but it works so it's good but as far as cell phone goes my daughter once when she's 10 and she wants one already, and I just keep saying no, not until ninth grade. So in ninth grade, she can have one, and I'm trying to find schools that support that when she goes to middle school. And I know it's going to be hard, but um, I don't know. I'm old, and I feel like I can be addicted to my phone. So, I'm totally addicted to my yeah. phone. <laughs> so I don't want her to miss out on being, you know, having conversations with friends and socializing. And I am lucky in Topanga. There is um, less pressure around that. Honestly, I was going to ask you about your neighbors. Do you know your neighbors up there? I do know my neighbors. Sure. Because I, I feel like it's sort of, I mean, there aren't really like, I guess there are neighborhoods, but um, I'm seeing it like as like a little house here, a little house tucked away here. It's not like you're going to like walk outside to your mailbox and be like, hey, neighbor. Right. Or right. Maybe- that's true. I'm not going to do that. Um, my neighbor across the street from me is very close. He just moved actually. But then my next neighbor is about three acres over. She has land. So um, I wouldn't be knocking on someone's door. And that makes it hard on the kids because they can't like run outside and just go to their friend's house. We have to drive them everywhere. And um, they can't even bike because the streets are pretty dangerous over there. Right. But um, we do... We set things up for them. So I think it works, you know, play dates and all of that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I was a lot nicer with my older daughter, meaning with other people, right? So we had a much larger social life then. Now I'd like to be more alone. I feel like there's a big void in terms of people actually interacting with one another. 
the way things are going, like the way things are going with uh, phones and social media, texting instead of talking on the phone, right? You know, trying to get, especially as a guy, I feel like women are way better at this. Women are better at being social as adults than men in general. Not just in general. I probably. know there are some ex some exceptions, but I suck at it. Like this is probably the best example of me being social as an adult is doing the show. Oh, because <laughs> people come over. I'm like, hey, come on in, and like I love to talk to people. Yes. Uh, but like getting the logistics together to like go hang out with friends on a weekly, you know, on a weeknight, I'm tired. Right. I get done with work. I put the kids to bed. My wife, like you know, she needs help with the kids. I'm not gonna, you know. Every yes. once in a while I can get out, but uh, you know how it is. Yeah, we don't we don't socialize either. My husband and I talk about this. I mean, we do sometimes, but very rarely. And that's the other reason why it's sort of nicer in the Midwest in that way, because things are slower. You're stuck in the house, so you always have people over, right? Just so the kids can play or whatever. But here, we do not socialize a lot. My, right. We don't have time. My husband's never home. I'm um, busy because I'm taking over everything. That, that he can't, he cannot help me. It's not that he wouldn't, he would. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, when I'm totally busy, I don't want to ask people over so I can just have like a lot more work on a day off. Yeah. Can I, can I make you something to eat? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <Don't> you, so <laughs> I mean, put your feet up, please. Yeah, Enjoy we try, yourself. but it's hard. It's hard. Yeah, I'm why, the same. I wish it were, why do I have this like dream that it should be easier? But then I feel like there's also, I hear from people that it's like, oh my God, I got invited to something. Like it's the fucking, you know, <laughs> then you got like that dread about having to go. Yes. And so then I'm like, you know what? Let's just not invite anybody. Then we won't give them that dread. We'll be nicer to them. But yes. I have this, uh, I think this ideal in my head of just like a good neighborhood where everybody sort of knows one another and it's easy and you just sort of like walk over into their yard and they just give you a beer. You know what I'm saying? I do. I have that fantasy too, but I don't think it really exists. I'm not sure, but I, I don't, I don't think so. It maybe maybe it exists in a gated community. I don't know. I've never lived in one of those, but maybe. What about that? Remember that, uh, there's that little beachy neighborhood, not far from Topanga where it's all mobile homes. Oh yeah, that's um, to top of Topanga. Is that what it's called? Yeah, and they probably do have more of that life because I know I have friends who live there, and their kids do bike around on their own and do things like that, which you is can nice. buy a deluxe mobile home yes. for one point five million dollars. Exactly. There you go. Well, that's <laughs> that's probably more towards uh, the Palisade side. These oh, are a little less expensive, I are. think. Yeah. Well, there was like this documentary about this movie producer who's like, I gave it all up. Do you remember this? Uh. Uh. And he like bikes through Malibu Canyon and he's like enlightened. And really? he was like, yeah, he produced like Jim Carrey movies or something uh -huh. and made all this money and then was like, what is it all for? And then he just he, quit. He just quit and moved to this like mobile home and like got simple. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but I wonder what he's doing now. Maybe yeah. he's, maybe he left. Yeah. He I don't know what he's going to do in his retirement is the question. He's right? probably going to be like, you know what? <laughs> Fuck this. I'm moving back to the Palisades. Yeah, exactly. I want some air conditioning. Well, that's the other thing. Topanga is probably not a good place to retire because everything is on a slope. Right. You know, for me to do my laundry, I've got to go down two sets of stairs and then, you know, they're just Topanga style. So they're all concrete and not really even. And, you know, so I'm not going to do well there when I'm 80. Well, you never know. It keeps you strong. Maybe. When I was in uh, Italy years ago with my wife, um, we were on the Amalfi Coast, which mm -hmm. is like... I heard that's beautiful. It's gorgeous. I would love to go Dramatic there. and gorgeous. Yeah. Like beautiful, beautiful cliffs, like, you know, 3,000 feet, like down to the ocean. Right. And we get picked up at the Naples airport 
and there's like this Italian guy named like, even just like, just like out of like central casting, <laughs> like the gold chains, like the whole thing. And he's driving us, uh, you know, on this like windy highway. What was his name? You Gaetano. have to tell me. Okay. I Gaetano. like it. I yeah. like that. I still remember. <laughs> and, uh, so he picks us up and we're driving on this highway and, um, you know, you're sort of like looking out the window, like, holy shit, like one false turn right? and we're done. Yes. Um, but there are all of these, um, not all of these, there's not that many, but there are houses along the way that exist like down the cliff Oh my gosh. and there are stairs that, you know, zigzag basically, um, against the face of the cliff to get down to these homes oh, Wow! and they're spectacular. I mean, the spectacular view. Right. And of course, as we're driving, because this is like a small Italian village situation as you're on your way, um, lots of people know, you know, everybody who lives there knows everybody oh, nice. else. And we're, uh, we're walking we're, or we're driving and we're, we're, uh, coming around this corner and we see this like old man walking with like two grocery bags in oh, each hand. Gosh. And Gaetano like honks a horn. He goes, this is the, uh, and he, I think he, if I'm remembering this right, he didn't have the English. So he's like, this is the father of my wife. Oh, so he, nice. he didn't say father-in-law. Yes. Dude's like 88 years old and walking these cliffs and walking these cliffs, carrying groceries and Crazy. looked spry. Yeah. So maybe in Topanga, this maybe. is a long winded way of saying, maybe this is what it's all leading to. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be there then though. You're going to get I out. Doubt it. Yeah, I am. I like it, but I like to move different places and where are you going to go stay somewhere in LA? We're going to stay in LA, I think. Yes, but I don't know where. I mean, I, I, my, my 10 year old plays golf. And so when I have to drive her places, it's like, you know, 60 minutes. So I might move to Rancho park or Chevy Hills into the city, right? Right. Be closer to a golf public golf course. So I oh, don't yeah, there's know. that we'll golf see. course. Is that golf course right off of Rancho park? Yeah. That one. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about, uh, let's, let's shift gears dramatically and talk about trauma. Okay. Cause that's a thematic concern of your book. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been through it in your life. I've been through it in my life. Anybody who stays alive long enough, it's going to happen, I think. Probably. Probably. But yes. There, are there people who skirt through life and basically just have like that happy, simple life where like, yeah, people die, but it's nothing like terribly traumatic. I have no clue. I haven't met that person, I don't think. But I also don't know what everybody's been through because I think a lot of people don't share things, yeah. right? So I think they can seem pretty happy and have had a million things happen to them. Right. I share. I'll tell yeah. anybody anything. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that I also have confusion around trauma that I've experienced or like witnessed. It can get confusing about like whether or not I actually was traumatized by this thing because mm-hmm. the, the, the brunt of the impact happened to people close to me, like a friend who like lost his brother mm-hmm. and his dad. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like double trauma and mm-hmm. I was close to that, but it wasn't me. Right. You know? And then... There's also the confusion around, um, like, do I need to like treat this? Am I okay? Like, I think, uh, there's an interview that you did, um, where you're, or something you wrote about talking about how you can't endure mm-hmm. and how a lot of, uh, black women in particular are sort of asked to endure and to just kind of like bury it and right. press on. Um, I am wondering, like, is there going to be a time when, you know, this all comes back around and because I didn't properly address it, that I'm going to have to deal with it. Um, I don't know. I don't necessarily think so, but probably I, um, I, in my own experience, I think, I, I think just to kind of go back to the, the comment, comment about resiliency, I have, 
I have sort of an obsession with this idea because I think in our in our culture, I can't speak for the international community or whatever, but I think that in our culture, we think that women in particular, then black women especially, and then children too, are going to be just fine no matter what happens to them. And I think that's indicated by the way we treat them when they've been um, perpetrated against or traumatized and and also how we even um, punitively deal with the perpetrators, right? So, you know, I would say rape is probably the most under-punished um, crime, right? A lot of people say they care about that and they don't. I think that it, it is often sort of like a communal chorus oh, the kids will be fine no matter what happened. They'll forget about it by the time that they're older. And I just don't believe that. And I also think that um, whether, or not, whether or not that person then speaks to that trauma and talks about that trauma is, is separate. But I do think it stays in you. And I don't think that means that you're ruined. I just think that it, it is in you. And I, and I worry that if we have a culture that doesn't honor how deep that trauma is, then we just feel okay about continuing to perpetrate. Yeah. It's like, what do you do with it? Because, and, and you like, you lost your brother yes. to AIDS. Yes. So that would be probably the central trauma of your life. Yes. I'd say the central trauma of my life. Yeah. But there have been others. Of course. Yeah. Um, and you know, you don't have to enumerate them or anything, but right. you go through stuff in life. And I guess like the question I have for you and for myself and just generally is like, what do you do with it? Like, what is, is there a procedure by which we can honor these traumas and like ventilate them and say, Hey, this happened. This sucks. I'm hurting. I got to carry this, you know, cause you don't want to be the person at the party. Who's like, hi, nice to meet you. Like <laughs> my brother died. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't do that. Right. <laughs> but, but sometimes, you know, it's right there. Cause I, you know, my son's disability, like that whole trauma right. central to my life. Like it's always like right there. What is his disability? I'm sorry if I can ask. Uh, he's paralyzed on his left side. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, so he's like four and he can't walk yet. Um, right. He will hopefully eventually. Like where he yes. Could, you know, he can do some steps, but he's, you know, it's working very, on it. Working on it. Mm -hmm. But that's hard. And you're right. carrying it all the time. And um, I'm honestly confused. I'm like, I think I'm definitely heartbroken and sad about it in a mm -hmm. way that will never go away. Right. But I'm not like, can't get out of bed depressed. Right. And I do, and I've written a lot about it, which I think is its own form of like therapeutic um, reckoning. Yes. And I've talked about it a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to talk about it with people, but I also don't want to lead with it and, right. you know, be one of those people who's like sort of uh, um, bringing the, the, the vibe down, you know? Right. So it's hard to know like, well, when... When have I done enough? Or like, is this healthy? Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, I know what you're saying. I don't know what the answer is. I just think that for me, I don't like it when people have kind of an attitude of, well, just go ahead and get over it. And I do think that that is, even if that attitude isn't spoken, I think it is often kind of put forward in the way that we treat victims. I mean... I, I think especially we can tell that now in this particular political climate that we're in, right? right? We have a series of mass shootings where people have lost their children. Oh my God, and it's we're unthinkable. And we're still not doing anything about it other than praying, right? So this is 
called an attitude of you'll be fine it'll be fine otherwise we would act against it and so i think too there is the unfortunate um truth and again this is just what i think and i don't know if this is true that if you raise girls and people in general and children to think that they should get over things then they learn to endure rather than to act right so if you don't know how to act in life against the things that are hurting you that's a big problem and so i think that's what what i was interested in in the book right is writing a woman who has been taking it and enduring and and going with it and then something happens that sort of triggers. Now, for me, that... Why don't you set oh, this up for okay. listeners? So Jocelyn is your main character. Yes. And just give people uh, listening who haven't had a chance to read the book just like the basics of her existence. Okay. Um, the basics of her existence is that she is the product of a very abusive childhood home. And she has escaped that home. And she is able to um, get married and have a child and be in a in a in a positive you know semi-positive relationship and um and then her mother dies and that death causes her to start remembering things and sort of lose control of her controlled space and yeah so that's that's where she is and um one of the things that uh you know, she shares with you is that uh, the loss of a sibling to age. Yes. Um, so you're pulling, you're kind of piecemealing it from your own life. Did you have a, did you suffer like an abusive childhood? No, I didn't. My parents were, um, good parents. Um, but I think like any family, you wish that certain things had, had gone differently. And, um, you know, also I, I, for me, anything that was not good for me there, I would, you know, keep in my, in my private space. (laughs) Um, but as far as my brother goes, I did have a very similar experience and that's what I think sort of brought on the idea of the story, which is, um, I, my, I lost my brother in 94 and it was very hard for me because I had a really, I loved him. You know, he was my older brother and, um, in a very good way when I was growing up. Um, and this is a good thing about the city I grew up in, our neighborhood would never have put up with boys hitting girls, not on any level ever. So we had very nice sort of um, protective ideas about the boys in our lives and the men in our life, really. Um, And so when I lost my brother, it was, it was a big loss on all kinds of levels. And then on top of that, because he was sick with AIDS um, and the culture, how old was he? He was 31. 31, okay. And the culture around us was so um, against us, it made it really hard. Yeah, I mean, yeah. What, like I've watched, uh, I took a course on AIDS, HIV in college, just mm-hmm. like on a, it was sort of random. It was in my dorm, you know, mm-hmm. but it was an eye opener. Right. And then um, what's that documentary on HBO, How to Defeat a Plague? Do you know I what I'm talking I don't about? Watch much. Oh yeah, you're like I'm too sorry. busy. I'm too busy reading poetry in the canyon. <laughs> no, no, I'm not reading poetry, but I'm. I just don't have a lot of TV time, and when I do, I usually read. I watch something really bad, like Real Housewives. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, anyways, it was all about the people who fought to get. Um, oh, so awareness. act up and yeah. It was a. It was uh, incredible uh, how much resistance there was. Right. And I think like it's hard enough to be sick with a life-threatening illness. Mm-hmm. But to also have 
all of that, um, like, you know, res- like resistance to, um, you getting the treatment you need, right? but also just the prejudice the that prejudice, goes along right. with, um, you know, oh, you have this, like it's right. changed, it's changed a lot. Um, it has changed a lot. It has back in the day. It was, it was rough. It was really rough. And I think that people felt like my brother kind of deserved it. And I think that's hard because he was a gay man. And was he out? Yeah, he was out. Yes. But I think there were, um, I think the idea, I mean, even for, I remember for myself, I think, I I don't know exactly how old I was. Okay. But I believe I was maybe 18 or so. And I remember even then saying to myself, okay, I'm going to go get an AIDS test. And then if I have any, you know, sex, I'll use a condom then. Like I remember kind of our, the, the whole ideas, all of the ideas about AIDS were around kind of like the idea that you were promiscuous or that you were gay or that you were, you know, so people really did feel like, um, he deserved it. And that was very hard. And so for me, because I'm relatively private, believe it or not, um, I kept that for a long time, kind of the grief of that. And, um, so I never talked about it. I really still don't talk about it much. I mean, I'm talking about it cause I wrote the book, but, um, And then I don't remember when it was, but a few years ago, my brother had left me his apartment in Midtown Manhattan. And it was, I had a lot of good memories around it because again, I'm, there's a lot of me that's very Ohio-ish. So I remember kind of going to Manhattan and, you know, my brother letting us stay at the Waldorf or he, I came once by myself and he sent a limousine to pick me up. What did he do? He was a pianist. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, um, and so I had all of this like cool city experience with him. And so when he left me the apartment, I felt like that was very, it was like a personal gift and we had it for 20 years and, uh, it was completely paid off. And then they sent me the, the corrupt board <laughs> sent me a letter that said, um, you can no longer rent it. Okay. Because the real estate market in New York is really hot and people want your apartment. And there was no way we were going to be able to pay a monthly um, condo fee without a renter. And they, of course, knew that. And so that happened, and I just had a total breakdown. I mean, I really could not stop crying anywhere I was. It was the apartment. It was the apartment, yeah. So that did me in. I mean, and I, so I, my husband said, honey, you've got to call somebody <laughs> and, and get some help. And I called a woman who was great, and it helped. In but, Topanga? No, she was actually in... I want her uh, to be in the canyon with you. (laughs) No, she was in uh, Calabasas. Okay. And, uh, and, you know, it's a long story, but we got kind of initially bad legal advice. And then I had a great attorney. But by that time, we were so deep in that suing the board and suing them didn't feel like something we wanted to do to own an apartment that we weren't going to live in, right? But I, and, and then the best thing, because there are good things that happen is we took my little daughter, she was maybe, um, six or something. And we took her to the apartment for like my, my time to go there to decide, are we going to sue the board? Right. And she hated the elevator (laughs) and this seems very silly, but I thought, you know, we're going to come here and she's going to be scared of the elevator and okay, I can let this go, you know? And I remember walking into the apartment too, and it was so different, right? You know, your memory is different from when you were there with someone living there. 
as opposed to it had been rented for 20 years and, you know, it just felt very, you know, I realized like the thing was not my brother. Right. right, right. So that was, so if you could do it good. over again, like knowing what you know now, having gone through therapy and had this intense grief experience, like sort of delayed, mm-hmm. would you do something different? I don't think my grief was delayed. I think my grief was internalized. I just kept it in, right? So I was still experiencing it. I would I would probably not do something different because I am kind of my the personality that I am, but I try to teach my daughter differently, right? I want her to um be open and be able to talk about whatever is in her. I think some of these things are genetic too, to tell you the truth. I think what you mean, like the, the tendency to internalize. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, do. I think that, I mean, my wife and her family, like she grew up in a family where like there wasn't a lot of outward expression, right? Sort of like Minnesota. Yes. Repressed Scandinavian. Yes. You know? yes. A lot of love, a lot of love, but yes. like, there's not a lot of like, I grew up in kind of an Italian, uh, like everyone's talking and emoting, you know, right. more, but, um, I see it in her and I'm like, this is just who she is. She's hardwired for this. Yes. But I also think she's socialized to this too. That's just the environment she grew up in. Yes. I don't think my, my parents were repressive about our emotions, but I do think, you know, my mom's German. So that's, um, that's an interesting combination with then my father being African-American, right? Because your mom's white. Yes. Okay. Yes. And, um, and so she kind of always had this philosophy of, well, you know, when you're depressed, you should clean your whole house anyway, because you're going to want it clean when you feel better. You know, so there was always kind of this idea, like you might be sad, but do your work anyway. Right. So I think that's how I grew up and that's how I am. And I just sort of push through everything, but I don't think that means that whatever it is, is going away. Yeah. So what do you tell your kids? Talk, just talk about it. Yeah. I try to get my daughters to talk more now. Am I successful? Not always. I think because they are sort of hardwired like I am to, to prefer to be a little bit private to, um, yeah, to try to deal with stuff on our own. Um, but I think when it's very big, it's going to come out no matter what, you know, and I, I mean, I was processing a lot of things, you know, I, I, I had kept a lot of things inside of me for a long time and I'm happy from childhood. Yeah. From childhood, from, um, and from adulthood, I lost my, one of my very closest friends, you know, and that was really hard for me. What happened? Um, well, she, um, became depressed and I think ultimately she kind of starved herself to death, which was really a very hard thing. And it was, and, and her last years were very near the birth of my child. Right. And, um, yeah. So I, I miss her and I'm, and I'm, she, she always had said to me, have a baby, have a baby, you know? And I was always like, I'm not having a baby. And so then it was sort of sad. I mean, I adopted my first daughter. So she was seven when I had her. So, she, you know, my friend, you, wanted, wait, she was seven years old when you adopted her. When I adopted her. Oh, wow. Yes. And she, and so my friend was wanting me to have the baby experience. She was Irish. So she was very, you know, procreate. Ch- yes, procreate. <laughs> exactly. But you know, I, I miss her and I, and that was hard for me to have then this baby that I'd wanted for a long time. And then I was so afraid even sometimes because she had gotten so thin that my daughter would be afraid of her, you know, and that's uh, hard. Uh, yeah. That's tough. Yeah, I so- see people like that who, uh, who are really thin and clearly not eating. Right. And it's, uh, 
it's it always like it feels sort of haunting you're just like oh yeah because it's so it's like it's like uh, a lot of times people are hurting really really badly right but they're they can bury it exactly you wouldn't know you pass them at the grocery store and it's like well i didn't i had no idea yes when somebody's that thin you're like oh right like, it's something something's not going right here right and so i think in that case i tried and tried and there was nothing i could do to make her live and it was the same with my brother right i tried and tried but there's nothing i could do to make him live what was she depressed about may i ask i don't want to say because she has kids so i'm gonna okay. i'm gonna say yeah um but i think yeah it was a long time again these things build up right and i used to always say go see someone go get some medicine right we i think in this culture we are so reluctant i've never actually <laughs> done it either so i'm a complete hypocrite okay but i'm Wait, resistant you've, you've to taking therapy you've i've gotten to... therapy but not um prescription help meaning you know mental health drug help Do i you, haven't done that maybe you don't need it no i hope i don't need it but i'm just saying i have a resistance to it and i think it is necessary sometimes i agree i definitely um have to exercise me too if i don't exercise i'm a hiker too <laughs> yes you will hate I'm, me. I'm right there with you yeah i have to do something i mean i generally play tennis but um yeah which and I figures walk into your book yeah i want to talk to you about tennis okay um we can keep going on this track but i'm going to get to tennis eventually well that's it i mean i am not um i am not saying i i i understand how difficult it is for people to come to terms with the idea that they need to take medicine because i also am resistant but i was resistant to going to therapy too you know my mother took us to therapy when my parents got a divorce so how i was raised uh i think i was 11. yeah so i was raised in an environment where my mother thought it was um good to do but um still in adulthood i didn't want to do it and i certainly didn't want to tell anybody i was doing it um, yeah. Yeah. There's so. some of the kind of a stigma. I always feel like, cause I've never, I've done it one time. Mm -hmm. I went to therapy one time and I found it very under, I was very underwhelmed just cause I didn't have the right chemistry with the therapist. Right. Uh, and I was also like 22 or whatever, you know, yeah. I was just like not in the right place in my life to get serious about it. But, um, for me it's, it's logistics cost and then the time that I'm imagining it will take for me to find somebody with whom I really right. feel in sync with. Like I'm imagining I'm going to have to go through three, four, five before I finally find the right one. I think that is generally true. But for me, I was sort of in desperate straits. So I kind of took the lady I got. I'm just waiting for yes. desperate straits. <laughs> Once I become completely a mess. A mess. Yeah. yeah. So she helped me a lot. I mean, I think uh, my friend and I always joke that therapists are kind of a little odd. They just are. Uh, it's not just me. I've heard this over and over again. So my therapist was wonderful and helped me a lot, but was also a little bit odd. Well, listen, I worry about therapists because to be absorbing that much psychic pain, mm -hmm. uh, like I know that, you know, they have ways of, of coping, obviously they're trained, but that's tough, right? You know, and it's just, it's just an unusual job. It is to have people coming in and confiding in you at that level. There's a part of it that appeals to me. Like I talked to Lori Gottlieb on this show. She mm -hmm. wrote this book called, I think you should see someone. I okay. might be, I might be butchering the title, but right. it's basically, I get the like, idea. and, uh, she's been a therapist forever. And this book is like a behind the scenes of, you know, what it's like to be a therapist. And, you oh, know, wow. so it's a fascinating book. That I, sounds fascinating. I had a million questions for her, but, um, you know, I think I, when I imagine that life, it's like, wow, that seems really interesting to have these real conversations with people. 
Right. Like, because so much conversation is bullshit. It is. Yeah. You know, like you did your day to day. It's like, oh, how you doing? Oh, hey, what do you do? Oh, hey, how's it yeah. going? Uh, you know, that drives <laughs> and you're me. like, I wish I was home. <laughs> yeah. I just want to be at home yeah. with, you know, with uh, my iPad or whatever. But, <laughs> um, so it's like, I love to have like real conversations at the same time. You know, th there is such a thing as too much. Like mm -hmm. we were saying earlier, you don't want to be at the person at the party where like everyone's having like a light, good time. And you're like, you know, by the way. <laughs> right. Well, I don't really think that's super appropriate, I guess. But again, like I'm raised in a pretty conservative environment. And um, I all, I mean, I could be wrong, but, but I also liked one of the things that I liked about my therapist, and I don't know if all therapists do this, but she said, look, whatever you don't want to deal with, don't deal with. And in therapy. Yeah. And period. And she said, um, because there were certain things that I didn't want to discuss, right? Because it's too painful, right? You don't want to keep going back to these moments. And so she said to me, <laughs> like being able to disassociate is a quality that you, that can protect you. I, I think Americans in particular feel like we've got to kind of like, you know, dig out every little detail of what has hurt us. And, and I do think we have to face it and we have to figure out what we're going to do with it. But I don't think that you have to keep going back and keep going back and keep going back. Right. If it's, if it's over and you figure it out, out a way to be finished, then you can be finished. And then when it comes up again, then you can talk about it. Yeah, I agree. The only thing I would say is that like with real trauma, um, you know, with grief, loss, uh, dealing with the, the wounds of uh, childhood or whatever it is, you never get over it. Right. You're always carrying it. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's like, it's not necessarily like you found a way to like package it up and like put it away. It's like that you've found a way to carry it. Correct. Yes. That is not, um, you know, encumbering you to the point where you can't live your life. Exactly. But it's yes. always there. <laughs> I think that's good. Yeah, I agree completely. I uh, think you do. You carry it forever. And what it does, which is kind of great for me, I think anyway, is it makes me feel softer towards people and a little right. more tender, which I like. Yeah. I think that's good. Well, I mean, that's like the person who finds a way to skate through life and has never really suffered any grievous wound might be cut off and detached from the the lives of other people. They might not have a way to relate. Right. You know, so when you have to deal with big suffering, I think hopefully the, like the, the most positive outcome is that it makes you more empathetic. Right. And um, patient and kind, hopefully. I, I think, yes, hopefully. Exactly. Um, so let's talk about tennis. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, in fact, I played a little tennis as a kid, like in high school. I've not like played as an adult. And I'm not like in the tennis world or anything, uh -huh. but I love the, the use of tennis and like the social structure right. around tennis, um, as a conceit in your fiction. I haven't mm -hmm. seen that. I'm trying to think of another book where there's, there's that. And it felt to me like, why has there not been more of this? You know? Oh, so, good. I'm glad. Yeah. So talk to me about like your tennis experience, like the decision to like weave it into your novel creatively and like, um, like what you, um, you know, what you found in it that was uh, useful to you as a writer? Um, the, the, there is the very smallest bit of tennis in Transatlantic. If you've ever read that book, that book is amazing and it's very brief, but I loved it and I noticed it, but I don't see it a lot either. I, um, I decided to weave it in because I've played tennis a long time, not since I was a kid because we didn't have money like that. Um, but, but I, uh, have played it as an adult. I got kind of um, 
swindled into doing it, you know, bribed. A friend of mine was forming a tennis team. I had never hit the ball. And how old are you at this point? Probably, I'm going to say, uh, 25 or six. I'm not sure. So like in Redondo. Yes. In Redondo. Correct. It's a good place to play tennis. It was great. And I started playing with a partner who had also never hit the ball and we still play together. So that's kind of good. I think that says something about (laughs) our personalities because tennis ladies are often crazy. Really? Yes. Okay. And that's this is what part I want to hear. Fun. That's part of the fun though. Um, I, I, I was talking to my agent once about this and I, and I think it is true that what's so great about tennis is everything is there, right? You have, um, experiences with racism. You have experiences with classism. You have ex- experiences with people who are just completely crazily religious. You have really, really, really wealthy people. You have, um, you competitive people, competitive people. You have, um, women who never got to play when they were younger because maybe they were too old to play sports in school. That's possible. And it happens and I've seen it and now play as adults and just love it because of that. So it's kind of, there's all these really cool parts of it. And then also, you know, really ridiculous parts. So, so are you playing in tournaments and stuff? No, I just play, um, I play Marine league, which is a league in the South Bay. Uh-huh. It's my partner that I just told you about my, her name's Yoshin. She's wonderful. And, um, are you guys good? Well, we're okay. I wouldn't say we're good. The thing is, is tennis has a lot to do with your age. If anybody doesn't know that already. So if you're 18, you're probably going to beat us. I mean, we might beat you on craftiness and skill and experience, but yesterday I played a match and I hope the women aren't listening. And we won that match only because we were a bit younger only. It was really hot and we just outlasted them. So you'll drive all the way down to the South Bay to go play. Yes. I love, I love driving down there. I love seeing my friend and, um, yeah, I'm lucky enough to be able to do it. Driving. I love to drive. My husband is kind of the guy that can drive for an hour and a half. We've driven cross country. I don't know, 30 times. And I'm always the person driving. I love it. I listen to my books on tape. I listen to podcasts. I get in a zone and I just drive and I like to see but what about, what about the traffic? Like, I like to drive too. Like I can drive, I used to drive crazy distances, especially when I was younger. Right. I do like 20 hour yeah, drives. It's great. But, uh, I can't stand driving in Los Angeles. Well, I, uh, I will tell you this. There's only one section that's bad, which is coming down to Penga Canyon Boulevard to PCH. Uh-huh. That stinks. And then a very brief section, brief section on the 405. That's trafficy. And so it works out for me. I, you know, and I like to go to the, that side of the city cause it's so different. It's usually breezy. Yesterday was boiling and it's usually 72 degrees. And I like to see the ocean and the ocean over there is very different than here. Yeah. And so I just kind of, yeah, I like it, but I, I mainly go for the women. I have long-term relationships with them and it's your buddies. Um, they're my friends. Your yeah. Ten, your tennis so, girls, right? Yeah. I mean, they kind of, these are the women or some of these are the women who, when I had my daughter as you know, they were like, Oh, we're going to give you a shower. And I was just like, I don't need a shower. You know, I'm 40. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And they're just like, Oh, you know, all the showers, sh- right? all the stuff. That was important. I mean, they gave me things that I didn't realize I would need, that's right. but I really needed. So that's kind of like the community of women. That's 
wonderful. Guys nice. don't give each other showers. No, I know. You're I lucky know. if like you guys like we'll take you to Vegas and <laughs> yeah, get exactly. you a stripper. Yeah, which right. is by which... the way the worst. I, I went to one bachelor party and I was like, this is I'm, I want out of here. Yeah. Well, I was really mean to my husband. I was like, there's no way you're having a stripper. I didn't do that. Yeah. No, nobody. He didn't do nobody it. offered. Nobody offered yeah. to throw me a bachelor party. But I was also like, I don't. I don't want anything. I He's don't... pretty much like that too. But um, I think I think the other guys wanted to, and then I kind of ruined it. You did. <laughs> I did. I feel good about it. It's okay. Yeah. Right. right? I, yeah. That, that, that seems like a tradition that we need to like maybe evolve a little bit. Yes, for sure. We do need to evolve. I had a friend though who um, was a dancer, and she actually, and you know, she was not poor and not a drug addict, and you know, she wanted to do it. I mean, I don't want to. I I don't want to you know, be judgy about it, but I also don't, no, I, I'm I judging would never, the guys. no, I'm, no, I know you are, but I, I never personally can see the draw for anyone who isn't in desperate straits. But my, my friend is like, it was kind of fun, you know, yeah, right. well, <laughs> so, you make great money. Yeah, she did. Right. So, um, so tennis and the, like all that you've seen over the years, um, when did you start to think like, I'm going to put this in a book? Have you always, have you been like, no, I never, just until this book. This book, I was living here, and um, the difference between the South Bay and um, where I play now, which is Calabasas, I played a public tennis and swim center in Calabasas, and it's great. It's a great community thing, and um, but, but I had never experienced the same kinds of women. They're very, many of the women are very wealthy, and they're very, um, I guess, kind and great and awesome, but also kind of out of reality. So that's that... what wealth does though. Wealth can, can. not always, right. but can, it takes really good people who are still, you know, nice to be with. They're not mm -hmm. like bad, evil people, but it just makes you out of touch. I think so. It right. insulates you. Yes. And then people say things that are just, I'm kind of like, did she just say that? <laughs> you know, just no manners. And um, we had a really bad incident once where a team came from Paseo. So I'll talk about them because it wasn't us. And, uh, and it had rained. And so there was a little bit of wetness on the back of the court. Oh my gosh, you would have thought like somebody had killed a baby because they had to wait 15 minutes to um, squeegee up the court. Well, then it wasn't super dry, even though they're all adult women making the decision to play. Suddenly it was kind of like we had... We wait, had, where is Paseo? I don't even know. Oh, where. it's in Valencia. Oh, it is. So yeah, the rich they ladies, come from, here. they come down and they were, they were not happy with the... No, because the court was slightly wet. And then she got very rude with one of the wonderful maintenance men. And it was just awful. And I felt just embarrassed. You know, she she said she was kind of yelling at him and he wasn't hopping too. And she said, what's the problem? Do you not understand English? And I thought, oh my gosh, people are so obnoxious, obnoxious right? Yeah. And that's like out of reality. She's out of reality. First of all, you shouldn't talk to anyone like that. Second of all, you shouldn't make assumptions based on how he looks, you know, Third of all, do you not have manners? I mean, these this is like ladies' tennis. You're so what did you do? Manners. Did you were you just sitting no, there? No, I said notes? no. I said we're not going to do that. Okay, he's going to come when he when he comes. The guy um, was trying his best. It was obvious, you know. They have these shade things, okay, and that's what she wanted pulled. So you know, it's like bad behavior. Yeah, very bad behavior. But good for fiction. 
Good for fiction, yes, yes. <laughs> and of course, everything is always, at least for me when I'm writing, it's always magnified. It's not really what happened. It tends to be bigger in the book, right? Because you have to make it a little more extreme. And so, and then there's this great storyline in your book where Jocelyn, the main character, sort of like falls in love with her female tennis Correct, yes. Coach. Yeah. Um, that stuff, as a writer, like seems really terrifying to me. Like it's hard to write. Yes. But you do it pretty well. Like how did you approach that? Were you worried about it? Because it gets... Um, yes. Like writing about... Yeah, <laughs> yes. The answer is yes. Yes. But the scenes are like hot. I'm like, wow. These girls are like... like they, They're well, getting it on you. in the book. Thanks. And yeah. uh, I would be worried that I would screw that up. I was worried. I will be honest with you. And I'm, I'm going to say a, a few things. One is... Um, I originally knew that I wanted to write an affair book. Okay. So I had originally thought I was going to have that be a heterosexual relationship. Okay. But then I just thought, you know, this has been done 1 million times, right? Where there is a, where it's, you know, it's heterosexual. And I thought, okay, well, what would it be if you have sort of a straight woman who then ends up in an affair with a quote, you know, lesbian woman? Because for, to me, I think people don't want to admit it, but you know, your sexuality is much more fluid than you think. I want to admit it. Okay. Well, you might want to admit it. I think it. it's, a, I've always said it's a 10 scale. 10 is like super gay. One is like super straight <laughs> and like, I'm a four. Yeah. I'm a four. Okay. I'm, I'm definitely straight. I know that I'm straight, but like, I always joke if I were like on a desert Island with one guy, it's probably happening. Yes. You yes. know? And I think All most right. people, if like, you know, if they're honest, right? If they're honest. Right. But I, I have to say that I did worry about it. And I, I will, I will, again, I will tell you the truth that I felt that I should cut <laughs> a bit of one scene. <laughs> and then, um, and then my friends or the, my, my readers kind of said, no, I think you're just being you know, a sissy basically, right? <laughs> you're, you're lacking courage. Yeah. And so, um, that's I what did. I mean. You, you got to have courage to write that. That's, I think that's the compliment I was trying to get to is like, you did a good job. Like you well, went thank there you. Thanks. and you, uh, and that is, I think, uh, a, like a cool spin on the affair story. Well, thanks. I mean, I, there are so many people who end up um, sleeping with their tennis coach. <laughs> well, that's okay. This is the other part. Like, give me the gossip because you've seen this too. Like, you've seen it playing tennis competitively or whatever in all these different leagues and places. There is the tennis coach, bro. There is. It's amazing. It's shocking. You have these perfectly content women who are in these just amazing situations, you know, where they... They have a guy that really likes them, it seems. I mean, we never meet each other's husbands generally, but I'm just, pro I'm projecting, yeah, right? Who needs the husbands? This yeah. is, this is, they're, they're completely peripheral. <laughs> yeah. But, um, and then they leave these marriages that are long-term with children and they end up with their tennis coach. And I'm just thinking, I don't know. I mean, I, I get it because it really is true that... Um, You've seen this happen. Oh, many, many times. I actually had a good friend, and I can say this because it's 25 years ago. Um, she did. I don't know what happened in that scenario, but she, uh, I really don't. Um, but I felt that she had kind of a fantasy of having an affair with the tennis coach that was messing up her marriage. Do you understand what I mean? So she wasn't actually sleeping with her tennis coach, but he was so on her mind all the time that she could not get get into the marriage, which I don't know. That's kind of funny, right? I, I'm like, I was thinking in my head, 
I want to see a documentary series about like women and their tennis coach relationships that have like where they've actually gotten together. It's It's, like, I want to hear the story. Yeah. It's interesting. I think too, there's this interesting, I always talk to my husband about this, where you have certain coaches who obviously all the coaches know they have this power. There are some coaches that never do anything inappropriate on the court. Okay. I don't mean to say every tennis coach is doing this. It's like a guru. Yeah. Right. But it becomes like a guru. I'm not kidding where the, where the women are kind of, you know, vying for the spot with the coach and, and the coach makes lots of money. I mean, tennis pros make good money and do they really, well, I think so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, depending upon how good they are, but yeah, I think so. And if they have a lot of followers, then, um, they do better. And yes, I mean, I, I don't think I'm bringing anything new to the world. This happens all but I have, but it hasn't been top of mind for me. Like I was like, Ooh, this is like a world <laughs> and like a situation that like, uh, is ripe for fiction. And well, you also feel good when you play tennis, right? So you have this feel good experience with, you know, I mean, most of the coaches are quite good looking, you know, male and female. No, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's like, cause I played as a kid, I remember taking lessons and it was like handsome tennis bro. Yes. Right. And he was like really good at tennis. Yes. And, and then they make you feel good and, oh my gosh, and it's a cute outfit and, you know, you just kind of, it's, it's hilarious. So it does happen. And, um, it was so funny because when my husband read the first draft, like before I was sending it to anyone, he comes home, he was in the worst mood over it. And he's just like, okay, just tell me now, <laughs> are you sleeping with your tennis coach? And I just started dying laughing. And I said, well, honey, that's just such a big compliment, right? <laughs> like that he kind of was worried. He was upset about other things in the book that were, is pre this draft, you know, so it doesn't exist anymore, but just cause he felt like it was such a depressing read. So yeah, got better. It that's got lighter. Well, okay. So that's interesting because, um, I think that that's probably as common of a, an experience in an edit as anything is taking all the depress like all the stuff out that is oppressively depressing mm -hmm. because so much of, you know, so much of writing fiction is I think grappling with trauma. Mm -hmm. I've talked to enough writers, like everyone's, you know, you, you don't, you don't go write a book cause you won the lottery. Like, or right. maybe you do, but like, it's usually after you won and then you lost it all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? Right. Yes. Um, but people are, tend to be grappling with tough stuff in their fiction. Uh, of one kind or another. And I think I've experienced this where you're like, you're getting it out on the page, but getting it out on the page and externalizing it and grappling with it, just, you know, you and the keyboard right. is different than rendering it in a way that's like, um, enjoyable to read for somebody. Right. So you had to excise a lot of the dark stuff. I had to excise quite a bit. Yeah. I, I think, um, and I would probably not have excised it if my husband hadn't felt so strongly about it. And really, I trust him very much. I think he has a good aesthetic. And um, he he just kept saying to me, honey, what, why do you think people read books? You know, they're not reading books to just like basically go, you know, go toss themselves out a window. You know, I don't remember what book it is. And I feel bad. I think it was The Friend, maybe. I'm not sure. But um, in the beginning, it says something like, you know, writing is about figuring out the reason to, for living, right? And I, I'm I'm really botching that up, but that's a quote at the beginning. I think of the friend, the Sigrid Nunez book, but um, I'm not sure if it's that, but I do think that's a part of it, right? I I think for me, I have to be able to 
love the character in some way or hate the character in some way. But I do think if you make the experience too devastating for the reader, then they're not going to like the book, right? right? So if you love, love, love a character, and then it goes a direction that that the reader can't find any redemption out of your, you know, you're kind of in trouble. And so I think that is what I had in the initial drafts. And, um, you know, some of that darkness was definitely supported by my agent more than the darkness was supported by my husband. But I think when we really got around to who's your agent, Laura Usselman, she's, um, with, um, SK agency. Okay. And, um, she, she's amazing. She's probably going to kill me for saying that. I wonder if she's going to get like 12,000. I've no, never had a person on this show who didn't love their agent. Oh, really good. Everybody okay. loves their agent. Yeah. I love her. She's incredible. And so, um, and she has supported me the whole way through, no matter which direction I wanted to go. But I think we did reach a point in time where there was a little bit of resistance um, once once other people were reading it who are in publishing, right? And that's fine. I mean, I don't regret. I think it was a, a better decision because I want the book to be read. And I also don't want it to um, isolate people. And I do think you can get so dark that, that people aren't going to read it. Yeah. And so then that goes against the purpose of me writing it, I think. So, yeah. It's, but it can be hard to see. Why is it yes. so hard to see? It's like, you need somebody like your husband or your agent or your friend to be like, Jesus, this is like heavy. And you're like, really? Right. <laughs> I, no well, I kind of knew it was heavy, but I had a reason for it. I, I wanted there to be kind of this idea that, um, that... I want to demoralize you. <laughs> no, no, no. I didn't want to demoralize the reader, but I wanted to think about, um, if people can recover, right. And so the choice is to have someone recover or have someone not recover. And, um, I do think some people recover and some people don't. That's and the question at the, that's the question at the heart of the book. Um, I think that's part of the question. Yeah. And I think also how do we recover is yeah. at the heart of the book. So I hope I can recover. Yeah. <laughs> you I'm can trying. recover. I'm trying to recover. Yeah. Um, and then the Simon character. Yes. Um, because it's, uh, it's like an interesting, like you, you've built interesting, like interlocking storylines and, um, character type. They feel like pieces of a puzzle. Mm -hmm. Um, so can you talk about like how that character came to you and like how you feel like he fit like into Jocelyn's storyline and you sort of play her storyline off of his? Um, I think I wanted very much to have a friendship between two people who had endured serious trauma. Uh, and so I was trying to figure out what that would look like. And the reason why is because I think if I am sharing, let's say my trauma around my brother, my experience is going to be quite a bit different than someone's experience who's dealing with someone dying of AIDS now. Right. Or living with AIDS now, I guess you can live with like, I'm, I was reading and I was, I was thinking about AIDS and I was like, like, I don't want to say it's cured, right? but you can live with it in ways that you obviously couldn't, uh, back when we were growing up. Yes. You can have a long life with good medicines. Yes, you can now. And I think that pretty much started in 96, which also makes me Ugh. hyper angry at, um, you know, the admin, the political administration that kind of was giggling about it in 1981. Right. Because how had you we ever, been serious, how do you ever forgive? Like, I mean, I guess I know like in our best heart, we can forgive, but 
fucking, what are you doing? People I don't really forgive that. I don't think I have to forgive yeah, that. Like, yeah, like, what are you doing? I don't. I don't forgive that because I think, too, if I if I do forgive that, then I have to forgive kind of what goes on now, and I don't want to forgive that either. I'm not forgiving that we have immigrant children in incarcerated. I'm not forgiving that, okay? And I don't think we should forgive it. The question is, I find myself having difficulty knowing how to act against that, right? Because right. I have been for so long in a luxurious position, number one, and number two, taught to just take it. So this is kind of at the core of what I want to figure out for myself. And so that's what I'm going to write into. But the character of Simon, um, when my brother was sick, uh, I was very aware of the Rwandan genocide. It was happening pretty much at the time when he was very sick. And uh, I felt very, very, very by myself at that time. And I'm sure you have, like me, you know, my mother would always say these things when we were growing up, like, there are always people worse off than you. You know, and I used to hate it. it used to drive me crazy. You know, eat your dinner because there were starving children in Ethiopia, <laughs> right? right? Um, but I do think to some extent for me to be able to find like somebody else's pain that was greater than mine at the moment oh. um, helped me. That's, a, that's an incredibly tragic and like hideous situation, but the mm -hmm. aftermath of it and the reconciliation uh, process that has gone on there on a pretty large scale is incredible. Right. It That's, does seem to be incredible. Yes. I, I mean, I, I know it's yeah. probably not without it's, uh, you know, it's not like perfect and rosy, but right. in general, yes, like that sort of stuff doesn't typically happen. Right. But they, I don't know. I've seen like, I've seen, you know, documentaries on it and, right. um, on working I, through it. Yeah. That's unbelievable. The trauma of that. Yeah. Well, so I felt that, that his tr trauma could meet her trauma in some way, right? Because it doesn't help to talk to people who don't get it. It just makes you kind of frustrated, I think. And also, I think for me, if I... That's one of the reasons why I never wanted to share my stuff, because you feel somewhat dismissed. And also, I'm not sure that you find an answer in anyone else who hasn't experienced it. I think people... I was thinking this earlier when we were talking about the way people sort of like, just just get over it. Like, mm -hmm. just move along. Right. I don't think that's necessarily people being um, assholes with the intent to harm mm -hmm. as much as it is people encountering their own emotional discomfort and just like, just like this needs to go away. Cause right. I don't know how to deal with this. Sure. Like when they're confronted with somebody who's in deep grief mm -hmm. and it might wake them up to the, their own mortality or the risks that, you know what I'm saying? Like yes. people just get emotionally uncomfortable and want everything to be okay. And so they, they either sort of tell you to just like get over it in so many words, or they will, um, encourage like, you know, repression or they'll retreat from you. Right. I think a lot of times people do that. They're like, I just, it's too much for me. I got my own shit. Right. You know, which is unfortunate. Um, I mean, I sort of get it, but I, I think, uh, like I, I get it behaviorally and emotionally, mm -hmm. but, um, it's unfortunate that we can't be there for one another better too much, you know, a lot of the time. Yes, I agree. I mean, I think that's really why I wanted these two characters to kind of be there for each other because I picked all of the the decisions that I made were sort of on purpose. You know, I didn't want um, Jocelyn to be in a bad marriage, right? 
I didn't want her to um, be... Which, which would make the affair like, oh, of course. Right, exactly. You know? Right. And I also didn't want her to be kind of simpering and no power and all the things that usually happen in an affair book to the a woman. The tennis coach was just so extraordinarily hot <laughs> and powerful. Right. His charisma. Yeah, and there was nothing I could do about it. I tried. <laughs> you know, so I didn't want that. And then I, I felt that I wanted two people who had been keeping their grief to kind of accidentally come together. And I think the reason they come together is because, of course, Simon is missing his daughter and and Jocelyn loves her daughter, you know, and this is kind of the center of the draw, let's say. And then they become friends. So it was important to me that they both have equal, I mean, equal or close to heavy traumas. I don't know how to say that, but, you know, I didn't want him to be frustrated because, you know, he wasn't getting his tennis match that day right it's fascinating how we have to like grade traumas right like was it it's like the richter scale Mm -hmm. (laughs) it was like a it was a 7.2 on the trauma scale right um that's another thing that i wrestle with it's like well how bad is mine Mm -hmm. like well how much how much right do i have to be traumatized when people are in rwanda and have had their whole family wiped out or they're in one of these like hellish border facilities and they've had their infant child taken taken from them them, right Uh, i don't yeah i don't know that rating it works but i think you're right i think it's complicated and um i just think from my own experience someone has to have experienced something like me or else it's really hard for me to share usually i mean this is a long time from the moment it happened Right. And more recently is when the apartment thing happened. But in general, I'm not going to be the kind of person who shows up somewhere and shares. Also, I find I don't know if you have this, but um, I don't really have any. I have less and less friends of my youth. Right. And that's a different kind of friendship, which is really for me, the deepest kind of friendship it's I've so had. It's so easy. Yeah, it's so easy. And so as I meet other adults and I become friends with them, that friendship is never, it's just not as close. Why can't we do that though? That's what I, that's what I want to be able to do. I want to be able to forge <laughs> friendship bonds as a middle-aged man that are like really like deep and lasting and it's fucking hard. Well, I would say, first of all, do you really want to do that? And second of all, (laughs) you're probably really happily married. I find since my husband is kind of truly my best friend, I have less need for the deep stuff with someone else. Plus you got kids. Yeah. Kids. Like you've got a lot of your uh, oxygen is taken up by all that. Right. Like in a good way. In a good way. Absolutely. (laughs) They're they're not suffocating you. (laughs) Um, Not right this minute. So before I let you go, Uh the writing of the book, I mean, Mm -hmm. have you been writing your whole adult life? Um, I've been writing since I went to, I was at UCLA and I was going to be, I was a literature major and then I met a great teacher and uh, I had written a short story for an assignment and then she introduced me. She told me to go see Greg Saris and then it kind of happened from there. So I've been writing since whatever. I went to UCLA in 90, when I came home from taking care of my brother in 90 five or six or something, you know, which was a bit of a heartache because I thought it was so beautiful. And of course I wanted to, you know, call him and say, I'm at this totally amazing place, right? At UCLA. Yeah. Did he encourage you like artistically? Um, I don't, I would not say I was, uh, artistic at that point. I was, I was academic, right? He was, he was for sure. So he inspired you probably. I think he inspired me. What was good about my brother, I I think for me, what's amazing, which I think people don't understand, if you have a sibling that's musical, it's kind of like all the music in you reminds you of them, right? Which Which is a gift 
and kind of a sorrow, right? What do you mean um, all the music in you? Well, every time I hear a song I, that I learned from him or thought about from him or heard from him, oh, right. I remember him, right? And right. so I have, of course, he was gay, so I have whole stockpiles of Broadway musicals inside of me, every word, <laughs> right? Right? Right, right. <laughs> right? And all of that takes me back, which is good and sad, yeah. right? So it's a mix of things. But I, I, he definitely, you know, I was like, I'm the kind of girl I don't want to sing, you know, and I would Can hide. In, I would no, and I would hide in the basement when my mom had company over, and then the my brother was playing piano, my sister was singing, and I was hiding in the basement. Yeah, but I would sing with my brother, right? So that you know, I I, I would because that was kind of fun with him, you know. And I remember we did the whole Barry Manilow Copacabana, wow. you know, Friday night <laughs> dance across the living room thing. Right? Wow. So yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of fun to have a brother who is, you know artistic and open and you know talented right no shit right i have yeah. a musical musical talent to me um like that to me is the most impressive natural gift it is when, impressive right because people can just right. sing and play and it's like holy cow there's and, a talk about powerful right it Ten, does tennis feel coaches, natural tennis coaches can't compare yeah <laughs> <laughs> it feels natural in a way that i think writing doesn't though i think you can work hard and become a good writer i agree i really do that's what i mean well i also but this is what gives me fear like in my insecure like the insecure part of me i'll think about like athletes because mm -hmm. that's another place where it's just undeniable you either have it or you don't right no matter how hard i work i'm never going to beat roger federer well, Ever. yeah, right. I'm Neither. not even going to be on the same court with Roger Federer. <laughs> Correct. Not um, even when Roger's 80. No, right? Roger will beat my ass <laughs> when he's 80. Um, but the thing is, is that, uh, you know, you talk about music, like maybe you practice and you're super, super diligent about it and your parents kind of force it on you and mm -hmm. you can, you can play some piano, but unless you have the gift, right? you know, you can take voice lessons Correct. and maybe you can become a functional lead singer in like a garage band. Yes. But you've got to kind of have the gift. Yes. I worry that sometimes it's like, well, maybe the same is true in writing, but no. I don't think so personally. I think you can work hard and you can learn. I think you can practice and I think you can now do it. I don't think you can be Toni Morrison. It's the same thing as you can't be Roger Federer, but I think you can be a competent, good writer. I do. Yeah. I think very few people are, are Toni Morrison. Well, I podcasting. Mean, yeah. You have to be born to this. <laughs> Not everybody can do this. Do you? Good. <laughs> I couldn't do it. I know it sounds easy, but uh, no. Uh, well, it's a delight talking to you. Thank you. I appreciate was... you trekking all the way over here. I wish you good traffic on the way home. Thank you. Do you have another book in the works? I do. I have another book in the works. Can you, are you willing to talk about it or are you superstitious? Um, I'm not superstitious. I'm, I'm writing. I had a kind of a mystery that I had already written and I'm working on that and I'm just undoing that whole thing, which is kind of fun. And then because I love, I love, uh, that kind of writing mysteries. Yes. Particularly like a, a Ruth Rendell mystery. So it's sort of old school, but okay. I like it. This isn't, this isn't an old school mystery, but that's the kind of thing I like to read. And then I'm working on another book that is again, going to be kind of dark and about trauma and it's, um, but it is going to have a, a pretty happy ending, I think. I think. Is there, is there a tennis coach involved? No tennis coach, but it's going to have... This is the first time I've been drawn to write about a younger protagonist. So my protagonist is about 15. But I don't think it's going to be a YA because I don't know how to write that. It's just sort of a coincidence. We'll see how the book evolves. I don't uh, know. Just write the book the best you can and let everybody else categorize it. Yeah. You know? And right. uh, is there any movie stuff happening? I mean, your husband could rig this up. <laughs> 
I there is no movie stuff happening yet. I wish I there'd be a movie. I worry about the tennis actually. Would the tennis be good on screen? I feel like what uh I'm trying to think of the only movie that springs to mind is Match Point. Yeah. Right. What other movie is a tennis movie? It can be done. Yeah, you think I don't know. That's what worries me the most about that. But I wasn't writing for a movie, so I'm glad you like the tennis. I had a lot of insecurity about that. Oh, no, see it's yeah. good. I think it's good. I think it's good and I think that uh it holds a lot in it feels like one of those creative choices that I was like, oh, oh, why has nobody done this? Yeah. That, that's a good creative well, good. choice. That's a good creative choice. Thank you. Uh, well, good luck to you and such a pleasure meeting you. Thank you. Okay, everybody. There you have it right there. That's Robin Page. Her novel is called Small Silent Things, available right now from Harper Perennial. Go get your copy. It's out there waiting for you. Small, Silent Things, a novel by Robin Page. Go get it. I do not think Robin Page has an internet presence. I've been looking all over the place. If it is, it's hidden. You'll have to sleuth it out, but, you know, she lives up in the canyon. She might not be messing around with the internet too much. Thanks to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music at the top of the program. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. Offer a critique. Say what's on your mind. If you want to support this podcast, if you listen regularly and you like it and you want to throw a couple of bucks in the hat, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can also rate and review the show over at iTunes. That helps do that. If you want to. Not like barking out orders here. I'm just saying. It's, it's an option. So, I should go inside. I have to, uh, the babysitter's got to go. I'm doing, I have a babysitter. So I can come here and, uh, talk into the microphone. I'm dedicated. So, yeah, my babysitter took my son to, like, an art fair, like, an art festival thing. And, like, she was very excited about it, and then she went. And then, when she got back, I was like, how did it go? And she was like, it was weird. Like, not in like a funny way, you know? Not like, wow, that was wild. That was weird. She was just like, it was weird. <laughs> I, I, need to, I need to investigate further. We sort of talked in passing. Like, I don't know if that's the answer you want. These are dangerous times, man. Wait, is the music starting again? 